Welcome to the Making Money in Multifamily Show, where we discuss everything to do with multifamily real estate investing. We believe it's the best way to gain financial freedom and build lasting wealth. This is where you'll find the best information and practices to help you succeed in your real estate business, whether you're already experienced or just starting out. Here's your host, Dave Morja. Hello, listener, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Dave Morja, and today's guest is Mark Roderick. Mark, welcome. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Good to hear you, Mark. To the listener, Mark is one of the leading crowdfunding and fintech lawyers in the United States. He has an in-depth knowledge of capital raising and securities law. He represents many portals and other players in crowdfunding. He has a blog at crowdfundingattorney.com. It provides readers a wealth of knowledge for legal and practical information. He also has a crowdfunding event across the country and represents industry participants all over, all around the world. Basically, just an all-around top-notch guy in the SEC and attorney field. So, Mark, I'll leave it at that. You want to tell the listener a little bit more about who you are and what you do? Well, uh, just a little. Um, uh, you know, s- since I got out of prison a couple of years ago, no, I'm just kidding. So in my career, I've always represented entrepreneurs. So everything entrepreneurs do, you know, in the legal field, I have done. And one of the main things entrepreneurs always do is is try to raise money because, you know, this is capitalism. So every business needs capital. And um, so I've always done all that stuff. And then like six or seven years ago now, when the Jobs Act, which is the law that created crowdfunding, was on the horizon, I said, wow, this is this is super cool because all, all it is, I, I realized at the time, it's not that great of an insight. You know, it's just letting people raise money using the Internet. And, and we do everything else in our lives on the Internet, especially your generation. And so now we're going to raise money on the internet too. And that, you know, when the internet comes to an industry, it's never a fad. (laughs) It's always like really important and long-term disruptive. So I said, this is going to be super cool and fun. And uh, let me, you know, become the world's expert on this. And so that's what I started to do. And I, I've been doing it ever since. So it's, um, it, it has been. It is fun. The world of raising capital is fun, and the world of crowdfunding is fun. Yeah, so that's a great intro, and I guess let's get into it a little bit. Um, just really quickly, how has the impact on, I guess, the internet taking over the crowdfunding scene impacted investors from a passive standpoint, and then from a, I guess, you know, general partner standpoint? What does that look like uh, for you today? How do, you, like, I guess, how do you see the scope? So right now, what, what has happened is um, uh, in the real estate world, so you know how, let's talk you know, as an example, the travel industry. So back in the 1990s, like I might have been the first one to ever book a vacation using Expedia. And if you did that, it was noteworthy. Wow, I booked my my trip using the Internet, capital I. You know, that's really weird, really cool, hip, very forward thinking, cutting edge. 
Whereas now, of course, it would be really weird if you were in a group of people, you all took a big trip somewhere, you know, to Puerto Rico or something, and someone raised his hand and said, I did not book my trip using the internet. So that just shows how, how things, what was once unusual becomes normal. So in real estate, the one industry that so far crowdfunding has affected most, um, Crowdfunding has made terrific strides. Like when it first started a few years ago, people were raising, you know, $50,000 on a fix and flip project or something. Now people are raising, you know, $15 million on a single project. And for at least a slice of the real estate world, we're kind of starting to move in the direction, which is I'm sure where we're headed, where you want to raise money for a project, you go online just as you, you know, booking that flight to Puerto Rico. It's just going to become the natural thing. So lots and lots of money flowing through that internet channel um, for real estate. Not so much for any other business type right now. Like when crowdfunding started, everyone thought it was going to be where, you know, Silicon Valley kind of startups went for capital. That has not proven to be the case. Silicon Valley startups are still going to Silicon Valley for the most part. Um, And there's, you know, some, some industries have gotten a trickle of money through the internet, through crowdfunding, but so far, Real estate is it, real estate's probably ninety to ninety-five percent by volume of of all crowdfunding. Again, in my humble opinion, I mean it's just a matter of time. Uh, you know, when Amazon started, all it sold was books and CDs. Um, so that's kind of like crowdfunding being real estate now. But then Amazon started selling other stuff, and look where we are today. So it is an uneven process, but it's just the internet. And the internet brings so many advantages to every industry it touches. You know, it whatever the industry, the internet connects buyers and sellers directly, kind of goes over the head of all those middlemen. And, uh, and when it does that, it drives down costs, it uh, makes information available to everyone, puts everyone on a level playing field. And those advantages are so powerful. You know, that's why Amazon is what it is. Um, so, I mean, that's going to happen, is happening in the capital formation space too. It's just a, it's an irresistible market forces when you can do what the internet does. Yeah, Mark, we could probably take an hour and talk about what the crowdfunding space will look like 20, 30 years from now, but that would be a whole beast in and of itself. So let's, let's, yeah, let's rewind. And I guess, look at how exactly this space, I guess, fits into real estate. Obviously it's a large part of it right now. So where does this fall in the section of the law versus I guess more the traditional fundraising opportunities that you used to see before before this came out. Sure. Well, that's a great question, and um, the answer or the beginning of an answer, because that's also could be a huge 
technical legal discussion that would, you know, bore your listeners to tears. But the beginning of an answer is, so there are three kinds of crowdfunding, what I often refer to flavors of crowdfunding. Um, one of them, which is by far the most popular, um, looks very similar to what you think of as a traditional private placement. You know, that's kind of traditionally what it's been called. It looks very, very similar, um, almost indistinguishable. Um, the only difference is now you can advertise. And in particular, you can use the internet. You can use any other kind of advertising also. Um, but the flip side of that coin is under this new advertised private placement rule, you can only take money from so-called accredited investors. And that means individuals with an income of at least 200,000 or 300 with a spouse or a net worth of at least a million without taking your house into account. Um, so it, it, if with that limitation, you can only take money from uh, accredited investors, that kind of crowdfunding looks very, very similar to a traditional private placement. It's just that now you can advertise. And if you think about what that means, when, you know, in the past, when you had a multifamily project, for example, and you're trying to raise money for it, very limited into where you could find that money. You know, your friends and family, maybe your accountant knew somebody or lawyer knew somebody or uh, your, if your parents were a member of the country club, maybe they knew someone, but very, very limited. And now, like if you have a project right now, as soon as we get off here, you can go put up a website to advertise that project to every freaking investor in the world. That's the internet. That's what the internet does. So um, it looks like a private placement, an old-fashioned one, but it because of the advertising, it's totally different. Now there, so that's one flavor. There, there are two other flavors of crowdfunding that don't look like traditional private placements, but the one that does is by far the most successful so far. Yeah, so you mentioned that first flavor there, and I guess with that difference being they have to be accredited, uh, how does that process look and why does it differ from the original offering? Well, the only thing different now, um, you know, so you can advertise, which is huge. And then you, as I say, you have to make sure that all your investors are accredited. That doesn't mean you can only advertise to accredited folks. It just means you can only take money from accredited folks. And the law makes you verify that your investors are accredited. Um, and there's complicated ways to verify, to do that. But the way everyone uses is there is, there's a company called Verify Investor. Um, and everyone uses them. You know, they charge a fairly nominal fee per investor. And you get a letter from them saying they're verified and you're off to the races. So it's just, it's a tiny step um, along the path of taking money from investors. 
So just to be clear, Mark, if you are taking that step, whether it be verified investor or some other company vetting the investor, if you're taking that step to validate their accredited status uh, as a sponsor or a general partner, how much responsibility do you have after that point as far as that goes? Zero. It is the practical. That's the thing. I mean, you don't, you're not required as the GP to use verify investor. You can, you can do it yourself. You can ask the investor for his or her tax returns or for a letter to get a letter from his or her accountant. And so people say, well, I'd rather do it myself. Terrible idea (laughs) because if you make a mistake and it screws up your whole deal, now everyone can sue you and said, you know, you weren't careful enough. You know, your assistant lost the piece of paper. So you assume liability for making a mistake. Whereas if you get the third party to do it, you are, you pass go, you collect your $200, you have absolutely no liability. So it, it, it is a no brainer to use the third party. Yeah, that makes sense. So not only do you kind of pass the buck as far as liability goes, but just in general, they're going to be more efficient at that process anyways, at least starting out. So you might as well just kind of write that check and just be happy with your decision. So yeah, I agree with that. Absolutely. So you mentioned the two other flavors, Mark. Can we uh, dive into those for a second? Sure. Very briefly, um, one of the two flavors looks very similar to a full-blown public offering, you know, like when a company like Facebook or someone goes public, they have to file a thick book with the Securities and Exchange Commission. They have to get approval. Um, That's what we call, sometimes we call it Regulation A offerings or Title IV offerings. So that's a second flavor of crowdfunding. It looks very much like an IPO, an initial public offering. And you do, I mean, I've done a bunch of them. You see them being done, you know, by real estate investment trusts and and some other companies. Um, And that's been successful. It hasn't been as successful as the first kind, but it has been. And then the third flavor of crowdfunding is this very unusual animal. Um, It's called regulation crowdfunding or regulation CF or reg CF. You hear a lot of different words, title three crowdfunding. It is this, um, well, I should first say about Regulation A. So the benefit of Regulation A is you can bring in non-accredited investors. I should have said that. So also in this third flavor, the the Reg CF, you can also bring in um, non-accredited investors and you do not need the approval of the SEC and it's not a super long and expensive process. But there's lots of restrictions built in to this third flavor of crowdfunding. You're limited, very limited in the amount of money you can raise. You are very limited in how much each investor can put into the deal, like really small numbers, which means to raise any kind of a month of money, you know, you have to get a lot of investors because each, you know, you can't just have a few folks each put in $100,000. It doesn't work that way. Um, so very, very stringent limits on how much you can raise, how much each person can invest, and how the offering is conducted. Those are all very, very limited 
in Title III crowdfunding. And as a result, especially in real estate, the numbers are so low, um, Title III has not really got off the ground, or it just got off the ground, but not very far off the ground. But those are the three basic flavors. Okay, yeah, thank you for explaining that. So flavor two, I guess you'd call it, was more of, a, I guess, an institutional play, it seems like, because there's a lot more hurdles, and almost like you said, IPOing, it's probably a bigger player is getting involved in that. Is that my understanding, I guess? Well, the idea is, you know, you're still supposed to be able to sell to retail investors. It It's just that... Um, Retail investors are not aware of it yet. They, they just don't know about these fantastic opportunities. Um, so, you know, the only reason to do Regulation A rather than the first kind of crowdfunding I mentioned is because Regulation A allows you to get money from non-accredited investors. But if the non-accredited investors don't know about it, <laughs> they can't invest. And, and that's a big sort of educational hurdle. Um, you know, the, the way investment trends work, it's not linear, right? Investors kind of, I don't know, you probably have never herded sheep. I have, I worked on a farm and I have herded sheep. And so it's just, in, the, the way it works when you herd sheep is, so there's a bridge you want the sheep to cross. There's this big group of sheep and you got your sheepdog and it's keeping them all in this group and you want them to cross this bridge and you can't get the damn sheep to cross the bridge. But if you can get one sheep to cross the bridge, literally, they will all cross the bridge after that one. And, and it, it's not even much of a joke. That's kind of how investors are also, you know, no one invests, no one invests, no one invests, and then someone invests, and that person starts telling his or her friends, and suddenly everyone invests. We're sort of still in Regulation A. We're still at the point where very, very few retail investors are investing. Okay, yeah, and you mentioned those retail investors. I've seen these websites where it's you know pretty easy to sign up and buy a piece of real estate, you know, a small portion of of real estate for whatever type of deal. Uh, so where exactly, just to clarify, where exactly would a, a website or service like that fall under in these types of flavors, I guess? It it could be, I mean, if it's for non-accredited investors, it is probably a, a Regulation A deal, you know, where they're allowing you to invest $100 or something like that, and it's real estate. That's probably what it is. Okay. And, and there's some great investments out there. Yeah. So then I guess when you're getting into that space, Reg A, where it's not accredited and you might be, uh, quote unquote, a brand new investor, what are some ways that you should be vetting these deals and protecting yourself? How do you, since there's kind of the internet barrier between you, how do you vet the sponsor and how does that process look like or how should it look like, I guess? Well, that's a great question. Um, if you are a non-accredited investor, so, and you are investing in a Regulation A deal, what you are investing in is not the project. You're investing in the sponsor. So you want to uh, look at the sponsor's track record. So in a Regulation A offering, it's required to give all kinds of information about the sponsor's track record. You want to look at that and make sure it's a positive. And then you want you really want to Google the the, the sponsor because 
it's all about the sponsor, you know? Um, so it, you know, a, a first time sponsor that you don't know, I would not invest. I mean, they may be terrific, um, but you're not going to be the sponsor's guinea pig. So if, if you get a sponsor who has been successful, and I, I know a bunch of them, um, that's what you're investing in. And, you know, understanding that real estate is unpredictable, um, that that's the basis that I would invest in. Okay. Yeah. So basically look for someone with a track record and a history and someone that's easily accessible that maybe even you can contact before you even get in the deal. So yeah, sure, that makes sense. Sure. Is there anything else you think we should talk about as far as investing in those types of deals specifically uh, before we get into the five key questions? Well, the only thing I would say is on the on the accredited investor side, there are some very, very reputable websites that list these deals. There's uh, two in particular, CrowdStreet and RealCrowd. So if you're an accredited investor and you're doing this for the first time, invest on a deal in a deal on one of those sites because they do a heck of a lot of vetting of their sponsors. And so just to clarify a little further, what exactly do they offer? Just more of an aggregation and then basically more info on the sponsors? Is that kind of their shtick? Well, they offer individual deals, you know, the, um, but they are vetting the sponsors very carefully um, before they let sponsors on their platform. Yeah, so that's really interesting. If you don't have any prior relationships to a sponsor, that would be a great resource to kind of go out yeah. and shake some hands digitally or even in person maybe you know, down the line. So yeah, that's really interesting. So Mark, let's get into it. The five key questions. First one here, what is an advantage you have had that has helped you succeed? Oh boy. I, I you know, I thank I thank God every every night for the all the advantages that I have been given. Um, you know, when you're younger you think everyone has the same advantages you've had. And then as you get older, you realize, you know, the old expression of uh having been born on third base and thought he hit a triple, you know, that, that expression. I don't know that I was born on third base, but I was probably at least born on second base. Um, education. Oh, my God. That that has been such an advantage for me. I grew up in a family that valued education. Uh, I've, I've been fortunate enough to have a variety of um, life experiences, and I have had the fortune of being uh, mentored by incredibly wonderful mentors and there's just there's just nothing like that you know um i you know we i i for i mean i think there are some people who just stand alone perhaps but i think most of us stand on the shoulders of of others and and i certainly do that's an awesome answer and then conversely mark what is a disadvantage that you've had to go overcome <laughs> Um, let's see. Uh, I have had very few disadvantages. Um, you know, I, I had a little bit of a turbulent, uh, turbulent childhood, but again, I mean, my, my father died when I was young, when I was quite young, but, you know, I had a wonderful grandfather. <laughs> it was a, paternal role model and, and other men, you know, the fathers of 
friends of mine stepped up. I've always had a strong community uh, around myself. So I, I really, I have been blessed. And, and I don't mean to sound like a, you know, evangelical who thanks God, thanks God that the Cowboys won on Sunday or something as if God cared, but I, I just have been blessed. I, I have had very few uh, disadvantages in my in my life. No, that's awesome. And it sounds like even if you had uh, more than you're telling me today, you probably flip and flip them into positives. So I can already I can already see that mentality with you. So so next one here, Mark, what is one thing you've learned that books, podcasts or other media did not teach you? Um, you know, I think the important things are what my mentors have taught me. Um, the importance of, I, I just got to say, the one guiding principle that I have found true at, in every aspect is the importance of excellent work. Excellence. It's like this ancient Anglo-Saxon value of you know, even when the peasants were working in the field, they would pride themselves on how well they did the work, even though, you know, their labor was basically being stolen from them by the aristocrat. The pride in your work is something that I have, you know, I've grew up with and my mentors have all I don't know, further instilled that in me. That's, uh, I'm not sure that you learn that. It's not a piece of information. It's a value. And it's an incredibly important value, I believe. No, that's awesome. So with that uh, value you have instilled, uh, what is one thing you are working on to improve yourself or your business? Um, try to how to squeeze more hours of the out of the day. I, I wish someone could tell me how to do that uh, um i i think law is a super antiquated industry it is very very old-fashioned it's very inefficient um and i want to figure out how to make it more efficient so i can provide more value to my clients um, and that is a real challenge. I'm not the only one trying to do that, but I think that's how I would answer that question. No, that's a very interesting take, and I like your perspective on that a lot. So last but not least, Mark, how can a listener reach you? Um, uh, go to my blog is the best way, crowdfundattny.com, or just Google my name, crowdfunding Mark Roderick, crowdfunding lawyer, and send me an email. That's always the best way. Oh, that's excellent, Mark. Thank you so much. I really had a fun time talking to you today. Learned a lot. Hope the listener did as well. Thank you once again for coming on the show. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you for listening. This has been the Making Money in Multifamily podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or would just like to connect, please feel free to check out the show notes for how you can connect or visit longviewacquisitions.com.